just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean. Look cool. Have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. New sponsor on the show, Clary. Clary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? Clary's got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins, they've got saxophones, trumpets, drums, they've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20 watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under 80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on folks, check out the show notes. Get a Glary. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Once again, we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hey everyone, welcome back to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It's one of our reading episodes. 
And we have a variety of people reading various ghost stories from various writers, such as H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe, Algernon Blackwood, and Charlotte Gilman, to name a few. So most of these episodes are roughly about half an hour or more, and there's going to be two episodes per story. And yeah, that's what we've got going on. Some spooky stories for you to listen to with some cool, snary drums going on in the background. And yeah, not a whole bunch of noise to interrupt what's going on. So I hope you enjoy it. Some spooky stories. And if you are lucky enough at the very beginning of October, H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, and there is also going to be a second H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival that's going to be less in person and more of a streaming thing. Check us out on there. Dave's got some stuff going on on that. I'm going to have some stuff going on on that. And also, I'd like to welcome our newest sponsor, Taza Chocolate, Stone Ground Chocolate. And you know what? This is super minimally processed. If you're like me and you have a bunch of food allergies, you can't do dairy, they have dairy-free chocolates. They, they, they use dairy alternatives, uh, minimally processed, of course, organic. I love them. You love them. Toss of chocolates. They, they come in those discs that you can break up and put into hot beverages and stir up. Ooh, I love it so much. Anyway, Oz. So why not? I don't know, sit down with a nice warm beverage. We've got the tea that you can get. We've got the coffee you can get. I don't know, maybe microwave some psychedelic water, baby. Ghostly horror stories. Recording by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. The Alchemist by H.P. Lovecraft. High up, crowning the grassy summit, of a swelling mound whose sides are wooded near the base with the gnarled trees of the primeval forest, stands the old chateau of my ancestors. For centuries, its lofty battlements have frowned down upon the wild and rugged countryside about, serving as a home and stronghold for the proud house whose honoured line is older than even the moss-grown castle walls. These ancient turrets, stained by the storms of generations and crumbling under the slow, yet mighty pressure of time, formed in the ages of feudalism one of the most dreaded and formidable fortresses in all France. From its matriculated parapets and mounted battlements, barons, counts and even kings had been defied, yet never had its spacious halls resounded to the footsteps of the invader. But since those glorious years, all has changed. A poverty but little above the level of dire want together with a pride of name that forbids its alleviation by the pursuits of commercial life, had prevented the scions of our line from maintaining their estates in pristine splendour. And the falling stones of the walls, the overgrown vegetation in the parks, the dry and dusty moat, the ill-paved courtyards and toppling towers without, as well as the sagging floors, the worm-eaten wainscots and the faded tapestries within, all tell a gloomy tale of fallen grandeur. As the ages passed, first one, then another, of the four great turrets were left to ruin, until at last but a single tower housed the sadly reduced descendants of the once mighty lords of the estate. It was in one of the vast and gloomy chambers of this remaining tower that I, Antoine, last of the unhappy and accursed Comte de C, first saw the light of day 90 long years ago. Within these walls, 
and amongst the dark and shadowy forests, the wild ravines and grottoes of the hillside below were spent the first years of my troubled life. My parents I never knew. My father had been killed at the age of 32, a month before I was born, by the fall of a stone somehow dislodged from one of the deserted parapets of the castle. And my mother, having died at my birth, my care and education devolved solely upon one remaining servitor, an old and trusted man of considerable intelligence, whose name I remember as Pierre. I was an only child, and the lack of companionship which this fact entailed upon me was augmented by the strange care exercised by my aged guardian in excluding me from the society of the peasant children whose abodes were scattered here and there upon the plains that surround the base of the hill. At the time, Pierre said that this restriction was imposed upon me because my noble birth placed me above association with such plebeian company. Now, I know that its real object was to keep from my ears the idle tales of the dread curse upon our line that were nightly told and magnified by the simple tenantry as they conversed in hushed accents in the glow of their cottage hearths. Thus isolated and thrown upon my own resources, I spent the hours of my childhood in poring over the ancient tomes that filled the shadow-haunted library of the chateau and in roaming without aim or purpose through the perpetual dusk of the spectral wood that clothes the side of the hill near its foot. It was perhaps an effect of such surroundings that my mind early acquired a shade of melancholy. Those studies and pursuits which partake of the dark and occult in nature most strongly claimed my attention. Of my own race I was permitted to learn singularly little, yet what small knowledge of it I was able to gain seemed to depress me much. Perhaps it was at first only the manifest reluctance of my old preceptor to discuss with me my paternal ancestry that gave rise to the terror which I felt at the mention of my great house. Yet as I grew out of childhood, I was able to piece together disconnected fragments of discourse, let slip from the unwilling tongue which had begun to falter in approaching senility, that had a sort of relation to a certain circumstance which I had always deemed strange, but which now became dimly terrible. The circumstance to which I allude is the early age at which all the Comtes of my line had met their end. Whilst I had hitherto considered this but a natural attribute of a family of short-lived men, I afterward pondered long upon these premature deaths and began to connect them with the wanderings of the old man who often spoke of a curse which for centuries had prevented the lives of the holders of my title from much exceeding the span of 32 years. Upon my 21st birthday, the aged Pierre gave to me a family document which he said had for many generations been handed down from father to son and continued by each possessor. Its contents were of the most startling nature and its perusal confirmed the gravest of my apprehensions. At this time, my belief in the supernatural was firm and deep-seated, else I should have dismissed with scorn the incredible narrative unfolded before my eyes. The paper carried me back to the days of the 13th century, when the old castle in which I sat had been a feared and impregnable fortress. It told of a certain ancient man who had once dwelt on our estates, a person of no small accomplishments, though little above the rank of peasant, 
by name, Michelle, usually designated by the surname of Mouvet the Evil on account of his sinister reputation. He had studied beyond the custom of his kind, seeking such things as the Philosopher's Stone or the Elixir of Eternal Life, and was reputed wise in the terrible secrets of black magic and alchemy. Michel Mouvet had one son, named Charles, a youth as proficient as himself in the hidden arts, and who had therefore been called Le Sorcier, or the Wizard. This pair, shunned by all honest folk, were suspected of the most hideous practices. Old Michel was said to have burnt his wife alive as a sacrifice to the devil, and the unaccountable disappearances of many small peasant children were laid at the dreaded door of these two. Yet through the dark natures of the father and the son ran one redeeming ray of humanity. The evil old man loved his offspring with fierce intensity, whilst the youth had for his parent a more than filial affection. One night, the castle on the hill was thrown into the wildest confusion by the vanishment of young Godfrey, son to Henry the Comte. A searching party, headed by the frantic father, invaded the cottage of the sorcerers and there came upon old Michel Mauvais, busy over a huge and violently boiling cauldron. Without certain cause, in the ungoverned madness of fury and despair, the Comte laid hands on the aged wizard, and ere he released his murderous hold, his victim was no more. Meanwhile, joyful servants were proclaiming the finding of young Godfrey in a distant and unused chamber of the great edifice, telling too late that poor Michel had been killed in vain. As the Comte and his associates turned away from the lowly abode of the alchemists, the form of Charles Le Sorcier appeared through the trees. The excited chatter of the menials standing about told him what had occurred, yet he seemed at first unmoved at his father's fate. Then, slowly advancing to meet the Comte, he pronounced in dull yet terrible accents the curse that ever afterward haunted the House of Sea. May ne'er a noble of thy murderous line survive to reach a greater age than thine spake he, when suddenly, leaping backwards into the blackwood, he drew from his tunic a phial of colourless liquid, which he threw into the face of his father's slayer, as he disappeared behind the inky curtain of the night. The Comte died without utterance, and was buried the next day but little more than two and thirty years from the hour of his birth. No trace of the assassin could be found, though relentless bands of peasants scoured the neighbouring woods and the meadowland around the hill. Thus time, and the want of a reminder, dulled the memory of the curse in the minds of the late Comte's family, so that when Godfrey, innocent cause of the whole tragedy, and now bearing the title, was killed by an arrow whilst hunting, at the age of thirty-two, there were no thoughts save those of grief at his demise. But when, years afterward, the next young Comte, Robert by name, was found dead in a nearby field from no apparent cause, the peasants told in whispers that their seigneur had but lately passed his thirty-second birthday when surprised by early death. Louis, son to Robert, was found drowned in the moat at the same fateful age, and thus down through the centuries ran the ominous chronicle. Henry's, Robert's, Antoine's, and Armand's snatched from happy and virtuous lives when little below the age of their unfortunate ancestor at his murder. 
That I had left at most but eleven years of further existence was made certain to me by the words which I read. My life, previously held at small value, now became dearer to me each day as I delved deeper and deeper into the mysteries of the hidden world of black magic. Isolated as I was, modern science had produced no impression upon me, and I laboured as in the Middle Ages, as rapt as had been old Michel and young Charles themselves in the acquisition of demonological and alchemical learning. Yet, read as I might, in no manner could I account for the strange curse upon my line. In unusually rational moments, I would even go so far as to seek a natural explanation, attributing the early deaths of my ancestors to the sinister Charles Le Sorcier and his heirs. Yet having found upon careful inquiry that there were no known descendants of the alchemists, I would fall back to occult studies, and once more endeavour to find a spell that would release my house from its terrible burden. Upon one thing I was absolutely resolved. I should never wed, for since no other branches of my family were in existence, I might thus end the curse with myself. As I drew near the age of thirty, old Pierre was called to the land beyond. Alone I buried him beneath the stones of the courtyard about which he had loved to wander in life. Thus was I left to ponder on myself as the only human creature within the great fortress. And in my utter solitude, my mind began to cease its vain protest against the impending doom, to become almost reconciled to the fate which so many of my ancestors had met. Much of my time was now occupied in the exploration of the ruined and abandoned halls and towers of the old chateau, which in youth fear had caused me to shun, and some of which old Pierre had once told me had not been trodden by human foot for over four centuries. Strange and awesome were many of the objects I encountered. Furniture covered by the dust of ages and crumbling with the rot of long dampness met my eyes. Cobwebs and a profusion never before seen by me were spun everywhere, and huge bats flapped their bony and uncanny wings on all sides of the otherwise untenanted gloom. Of my exact age, even down to days and hours, I kept a most careful record, for each movement of the pendulum of the massive clock in the library told off so much more of my doomed existence. At length I approached that time which I had so long viewed with apprehension. Since most of my ancestors had been seized some little while before they reached the exact age of Comte Henry at his end, I was every moment on the watch for the coming of the unknown death. In what strange form the curse should overtake me I knew not, but I was resolved, at least, that it should not find me a cowardly or a passive victim. With new vigour, I applied myself to my examination of the old chateau and its contents. It was upon one of the longest of all my excursions of discovery in the deserted portion of the castle, less than a week before that fatal hour which I felt must mark the utmost limit of my stay on earth, beyond which I could have not even the slightest hope of continuing to draw breath, that I came upon the culminating event of my whole life. I had spent the better part of the morning in climbing up and down half-ruined staircases in one of the most dilapidated of the ancient turrets. As the afternoon progressed, I sought the lower levels, 
descending into what appeared to be either a medieval place of confinement or a more recently excavated storehouse for gunpowder. As I slowly traversed the nitre-encrusted passageway at the foot of the last staircase, the paving became very damp, and soon I saw by the light of my flickering torch that a blank, water-stained wall impeded my journey. Turning to retrace my steps, my eye fell upon a small trap door with a ring which lay directly beneath my feet. Pausing, I succeeded with difficulty in raising it, whereupon there was revealed a black aperture, exhaling noxious fumes which caused my torch to sputter, and disclosing in the unsteady glare the top of a flight of stone steps. As soon as the torch, which I lowered into the repellent depths, burned freely and steadily, I commenced my descent. The steps were many, and led to a narrow stone-flagged passage which I knew must be far underground. The passage proved of great length and terminated in a massive oaken door, dripping with the moisture of the place and stoutly resisting all my attempts to open it. Ceasing after a time my efforts in this direction, I had proceeded back some distance toward the steps, when there suddenly fell to my experience one of the most profound and maddening shocks capable of reception by the human mind. Without warning, I heard the heavy door behind me creak slowly open upon its rusted hinges. My immediate sensations are incapable of analysis. To be confronted in a place as thoroughly deserted as I had deemed the old castle with evidence of the presence of man or spirit produced in my brain a horror of the most acute description. When at last I turned and faced the seat of the sound, my eyes must have started from their orbits at the sight of what they beheld. There in the ancient Gothic doorway stood a human figure. It was that of a man clad in a skull cap and long medieval tunic of dark colour. His long hair and flowing beard were of a terrible and intense black hue, and of incredible profusion. His forehead high beyond the usual dimensions, his cheeks deep sunken and heavily lined with wrinkles, and his hands long, claw-like and gnarled were of such a deathly marble-like whiteness as I have never elsewhere seen in man. His figure, lean to the proportions of a skeleton, was strangely bent and almost lost within the voluminous folds of his peculiar garment. But strangest of all were his eyes, Twin caves of abysmal blackness, profound in expression of understanding, yet inhuman in degree of wickedness. These were now fixed upon me, piercing my soul with their hatred and rooting me to the spot whereon I stood. At last, the figure spoke in a rumbling voice that chilled me through with its dull hollowness and latent malevolence. The language in which the discourse was clothed was that debased form of Latin in use amongst the more learned men of the Middle Ages and made familiar to me by my prolonged researches into the works of the old alchemists and demonologists. The apparition spoke of the curse which had hovered over my house, told me of my coming end, dwelt on the wrong perpetrated by my ancestor against old Michel Mouvet and gloated over the revenge of Charles Le Sorcier. He told how the young Charles had escaped into the night, returning in after years to kill Godfrey the heir with an arrow, just as he approached the age which had been his father's at his assassination. 
how he had secretly returned to the estate and established himself, unknown, in the even then deserted subterranean chamber whose doorway now framed the hideous narrator. How he had seized Robert, son of Godfrey, in a field, forced poison down his throat and left him to die at the age of 32, thus maintaining the foul provisions of his vengeful curse. At this point, I was left to imagine the solution of the greatest mystery of all, how the curse had been fulfilled since that time when Charles Le Sorcier must in the course of nature have died, for the man digressed into an account of the deep alchemical studies of the two wizards, father and son, speaking most particularly of the researches of Charles Le Sorcier concerning the elixir which should grant to him who partook of it eternal life and youth. His enthusiasm had seemed for the moment to remove from his terrible eyes the hatred that had at first so haunted them. But suddenly the fiendish glare returned, and with a shocking sound like the hissing of a serpent, the stranger raised the glass vial with the evident intent of ending my life as had Charles Le Sorcier six hundred years before ended that of my ancestor. Prompted by some preserving instinct of self-defence, I broke through the spell that had hitherto held me immovable and flung my now dying torch at the creature who menaced my existence. I heard the file break harmlessly against the stones of the passage as the tunic of the strange man caught fire and lit the horrid scene with a ghastly radiance. The shriek of fright and impotent malice emitted by the would-be assassin proved too much for my already shaken nerves and I fell prone upon the slimy floor in a total faint. When at last my senses returned, all was frightfully dark, and my mind, remembering what had occurred, shrank from the idea of beholding more. Yet curiosity overmastered all. Who, I asked myself, was this man of evil, and how came he within the castle walls? Why should he seek to avenge the death of poor Michel Mouvet, and how had the curse been carried on through all the long centuries since the time of Charles Le Sorcier? The dread of years was lifted from my shoulders, for I knew that he whom I had felled was the source of all my danger from the curse. And now that I was free, I burned with the desire to learn more of the sinister thing which had haunted my line for centuries and made of my own youth one long, continued nightmare. Determined upon further exploration, I felt in my pockets for flint and steel and lit the unused torch which I had with me. First of all, the new light revealed the distorted and blackened form of the mysterious stranger. The hideous eyes were now closed. Disliking the sight, I turned away and entered the chamber beyond the Gothic door. Here, I found what seemed much like an alchemist's laboratory. In one corner was an immense pile of shining yellow metal that sparkled gorgeously in the light of the torch. It may have been gold, but I did not pause to examine it, for I was strangely affected by that which I had undergone. At the farther end of the apartment was an opening, leading out into one of the many wild ravines of the dark hillside forest. Filled with wonder, yet now realising how the man had obtained access to the chateau, I proceeded to return. I had intended to pass by the remains of the stranger with averted face, but as I approached the body, I seemed to hear emanating from it a faint sound, as though life were not yet wholly extinct. 
Aghast, I turned to examine the charred and shriveled figure on the floor. Then all at once, the horrible eyes, blacker even than the seared face in which they were set, opened wide with an expression which I was unable to interpret. The cracked lips tried to frame words which I could not well understand. Once I caught the name of Charles de Saussure, and again I fancied that the words years and curse issued from the twisted mouth. Still, I was at a loss to gather the purport of his disconnected speech. At my evident ignorance of his meaning, the pitchy eyes once more flashed malevolently at me, until, helpless as I saw my opponent to be, I trembled as I watched him. Suddenly, the wretch, animated with his last burst of strength, raised his hideous head from the damp and sunken pavement. Then, as I remained paralysed with fear, he found his voice, and in his dying breath screamed forth those words which have ever afterward haunted my days and my nights. "'Fool!' he shrieked. "'Can you not guess my secret? Have you no brain whereby you may recognise the will which has through six long centuries fulfilled the dreadful curse upon your house? Have I not told you of the great elixir of eternal life? Know you not how the secret of alchemy was solved?' I tell you, it is I, I, I that have lived for 600 years to maintain my revenge, for I am Charles Le Saucier. End of The Alchemist Welcome to Innsmouth, stranger. I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest that includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com, forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon because remember Innsmouth isn't just a place it's a state of mind. This month's bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelics suspended in green tea and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic water. Who needs a Tillinghast resonator when you've got psychedelic water? Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for curvy girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Oh, Larry. Fine, fine student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Glary. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, 
fate from another world. It's a store that has art. It has toys. It has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave likes to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design. Not graphic design, graphic novels for you. Thanks from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGPTCM. We've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for specials. Anyway, thank you again so much. Did you know that there is a THC derivative that's legal called Delta-8? Not to be confused with the Delta variant, but Delta-8, yeah. Uh, you can get it in chewable form, and it's sold at, uh, what, what, what's, what's Golden Goat CBD, one of our sponsors? Yeah, you can get some Delta-8, and you can also pick up some CBD chewables gummies. They've got smokables for the Delta-8, and... They've got all kinds of stuff for CBD, and they can help you out. Uh, check the show notes, Golden Goat. And while you're in the show notes, hey, do you know about Donner? Donner has so many amazing musical instruments from all kinds, mandolins, banjos. They've got drums. They've got amplifiers. They've got guitars. They've got all kinds of stuff, and they ship worldwide. Check out Donner. I think you're going to like it, and I think Donner's going to have a good deal for you. So I, I love their electric guitars. A lot of the music that I perform for the show is either on one brand or it's on a Donner. So check out Donner and check out some savings. All right. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends... Recording by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. Story 12. A Bit of Wood. He found himself in Merin with some cousins who had various slight ailments, but being rich and imaginative, had gone to a sanatorium to be cured. But for its sanatoria, Merin might be a cheerful place. Their ubiquity reminds a healthy man too often that the air is really good. Being well enough himself except for a few mental worries, he went to a guest house in the neighbourhood. In the sanatorium, his cousins complained bitterly of the food, the ignorant sisters, the inattentive doctors, and the idiotic regulations generally, which proves that people should not go to a sanatorium unless they are really ill. However, they paid heavily for being there, so felt that something was being accomplished, and were annoyed when he called each day for tea and told them cheerfully how much better they looked which proved again that their ailments were slight and quite curable by the local doctor at home. With one of the ailing cousins, a rich and pretty girl, he believed himself in love. It was a three weeks business, and he spent his mornings walking in the surrounding hills, his mind reflective, analytical and ambitious, as with a man in love. 
He thought of thousands of things. He mooned. Once, for instance, he paused beside a rivulet to watch the buttercups dip and asked himself, will she be like this when we're married? So anxious to be well that she thinks fearfully all the time of getting ill? For if so, he felt he would be bored. He knew himself accurately enough to realise that he never could stand that. Yet money was a wonderful thing to have, and he, already 35, had little enough. Am I influenced by her money then, he asked himself, and so went on to ask and wonder about many things besides, for he was of a reflective temperament, and his father had been a minor poet. And doubt crept in. He felt a chill. He was not much of a man, perhaps thin-blooded and unsuccessful, rather a dreamer, too, into the bargain. He had £100 a year of his own, and a position in a philanthropic institution, due to influence, with a nominal salary attached. He meant to keep the latter after marriage. He would work just the same. Nobody should ever say that of him. And as he sat on the fallen tree beside the rivulet, idly knocking stones into the rushing water with his stick, he reflected upon those banal truisms that epitomise two-thirds of life, The way little unimportant things can change a person's whole existence was the one his thought just now had fastened on. His cousin's chill and headache, for instance, caught at a gloomy picnic on the Campania three weeks before, had led her to going into a sanatorium and being advised that her heart was weak, that she had a tendency to asthma, that gout was in her system, and that a treatment of X-rays, radium, sun baths and light baths violet rays, no meat, complete rest, with big daily fees to experts with European reputations were imperative. From that chill, sitting a moment too long in the shadow of a forgotten patrician's tomb, he reflected, has come all this, all this, including his doubt as to whether it was herself or her money that he loved, whether he could stand living with her always, whether he need really keep his work on after marriage. In a word, his entire life and future, and her own as well, all from that tiny chill three weeks ago. And he knocked with his stick, a little piece of sawn-off board that lay beside the rushing water. Upon that bit of wood, his mind, his mood, then fastened itself. It was triangular, a piece of sawn-off wood, brown with age and ragged. Once it had been part of a triumphant, hopeful sapling on the mountains. Then, when thirty years of age, the men had cut it down. The rest of it stood somewhere now, at this very moment, in the walls of the house. This extra bit was cast away as useless. It served no purpose anywhere. It was slowly rotting in the sun. But each tap of the stick, he noticed, turned it sideways without sending it over the edge into the rushing water. It was obstinate. It doesn't want to go in, he laughed, his father's little talent cropping out in him. But by Jove it shall. And he pushed it with his foot. But again it stopped, stuck endways against a stone. He then stooped, picked it up and threw it in. It plopped and splashed and went scurrying away downhill with the bubbling water. Even that scrap of useless wood, he reflected, rising to continue his aimless walk and still idly dreaming, 
even that bit of rubbish may have a purpose and may change the life of someone, somewhere, and then went strolling through the fragrant pine woods, crossing a dozen similar streams and hitting scores of stones and scraps and fir cones as he went, till he finally reached his gas house an hour later and found a note from her. We shall expect you about three o'clock. We thought of going for a drive. The others feel so much better. It was a revealing touch, the way she put it on the others. He made his mind up then and there. Thus tiny things divide the course of life, that he could never be happy with such an affected creature. He went for that drive, sat next to her consuming beauty, proposed to her passionately on the way back, was accepted before he could change his mind, and is now the father of several healthy children, and just as much afraid of getting ill or of their getting ill as she was 15 years before. The female, of course, matures long, long before the male, he reflected, thinking the matter over in his study once. And that scrap of wood he idly set in motion out of impulse also went its destined way upon the hurrying water that never dared to stop. Proud of its newfound motion, it bobbed down merrily, spinning and turning for a mile or so, dancing gaily over sunny meadows, brushing the dipping buttercups as it passed, through vineyards, woods and under dusty roads and neat cool gutters, and tumbling headlong over little waterfalls until it neared the plain. And so, finally, it came to a wooden trough that led off some of the precious water to a sawmill where bare-armed men did practical and necessary things. At the parting of the ways, its angles delayed it for a moment, undecided which way to take. It wobbled, and upon that moment's wobbling hung tragic issues, issues of life and death. Unknowing, yet assuredly not unknown, it chose the trough. It swung light-heartedly into the tearing sluice. It whirled with the gush of water towards the wheel, banged, spun, trembled, caught fast in the side where the cogs just chanced to be, and abruptly stopped the wheel. At any other spot, the pressure of the water must have smashed it into pulp and the wheel have continued as before. But it was caught in the one place where the various tensions held it fast immovably. It stopped the wheel and so the machinery of the entire mill. It jammed like iron. The particular angle at which the double-handed saw, held by two weary and perspiring men, had cut it off a year before, just enabled it to fit and wedge itself with irresistible exactitude. The pressure of the tearing water combined with the weight of the massive wheel to fix it tight and rigid, and in due course a workman, it was the foreman of the mill, came from his post inside to make investigations. He discovered the irritating item that caused the trouble. He put his weight in a certain way. He strained his hefty muscles. He swore, and the scrap of wood was easily dislodged. He fished the morsel out and tossed it on the bank and spat on it. The great wheel started with a mighty groan, but it started a fraction of a second before he expected it would start. He overbalanced, clutching the revolving framework with a frantic effort, shouted, swore, leapt at nothing, and fell into the pouring flood. In an instant, he was turned upside down, sucked under, drowned. He was engaged to be married, and had put by a thousand cronen in the Tirola Spa Bank. He was a sober and hard-working man.
There was a paragraph in the local paper two days later. The Englishman, asking the porter of his guest house for something to wrap up a present he was taking to his cousin in the sanatorium, used that very issue. As he folded its crumpled and recalcitrant sheets with sentimental care about the precious object, his eye fell carelessly upon the paragraph. Being of an idle and reflective temperament, he stopped to read it. It was headed Unglücksfall, and his poetic eye, inherited from his foolish, rhyming father, caught the pretty expression Fliesen des Wasser. He read the first few lines. Some fellow with a picturesque Tyrolese name had been drowned beneath a mill wheel. He was popular in the neighbourhood, it seemed. He had saved some money and was going to be married. It was very sad. Our reader's sympathy was with him. And being of a reflective temperament, the Englishman thought for a moment while he went on wrapping up the parcel. He wondered if the man had really loved the girl, whether she too had money, and whether they would have had lots of children and been happy ever afterwards. And then he hurried out towards the sanatorium. I shall be late, he reflected. Such little unimportant things delay one. End of a bit of wood. Show notes, check them out. That's where you're going to find sponsors and guests and T-shirts and stickers and high fives. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you later. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the show. Music is by me, D.B. Spitzer, edited and produced by me, D.B. Spitzer. The interview portions are always edited and produced by David Heath. And, hey, you can find us wherever you find podcasts. So check out pgttcm.com. And if you don't want to check out the Patreon, if you don't want to do that and you want to help out the show, just go to sponsors or buy T-shirts or anything like that. Anything helps. Thank you again.